good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever the case may be to listeners of uh, Regeneration Podcast, the viewers of this YouTube. Um, and every maybe third episode, I remind people that uh, you can find us over at Spotify. If you're watching us on YouTube, we get we began with more podcasts than YouTubes. Now we see more YouTubers than the podcast at Spotify, Podbean, I believe Apple and others. And uh, so here we are with uh, Michael Martin and I, we're the ones with you today. We've got a subject we're going to bring up, and it's a subject that pertains to um, the beginning uh, of people in the, the Catholic fold. The beginning of the liturgical year starts in a few weeks. It ends with the Solemnity of Christ the King and starts with Advent, which is considered New Year. But uh, Michael, last week, uh, you know, I, I flew solo with Guido Preparata without you. I'm sure some of our listeners, they heard that your mom was uh, uh, in the anteroom of death and uh, tell people where you are and how you're doing. I'm sure there's. Yeah, she well, yeah, she died that day. So so uh, so last Wednesday, I when I woke up, you know, and I had to go teach that day. So usually I get her up and dress before I go to work. She was not in good shape. So in fact, she she was sliding off of her wheelchair so i had to pick her up bodily and put her back in bed and she didn't leave that bed until she was done uh but it was actually a beautiful passing and actually it uh, bears well on our topic for today because uh my sisters were here my brother didn't make it in time he was on, on a flight back from california he didn't quite make it uh but my sisters were here most of my kids were here most of my sister's kids were here so it was a full house, and uh, as she was dying, my sister called me into the room around five o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, so we went in there, and we're all standing around the bed, and we knew we needed to pray. And the closest thing I had to me was uh, the 1945 edition of the Book of Common Prayer. Wow! So I turned to the uh, the rite of burial, and and we did some of the prayers from there and it was beautiful. I mean, it's the language is beautiful anyway. And, uh, we were there and she took her last breath and it was, uh, surprising to me because I'd never been present at somebody's death before. Oh, really? I'd been there right after, but never present at when they died. And I, 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 and we accompanied her on the entire journey. I mean, she's been living with me for seven years and, uh, and it was interesting. So as just as she died, I mean, before she was dying, she was kind of looking straight up as if something was opening up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the moment she died, my sister was in the back of the room by the door and she thought she heard somebody come in the house and she went to go make sure the door was shut. It's right having flies get in the house if people left the door open, but the door was shut. So it opened and shut at the moment well, she died. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. So it was really beautiful. And for all of us, it was a beautiful experience. And then and there was a lot of tears, as you can expect. But an hour later, you know, everybody, just about everybody was on the front porch. <laughs> and it was about 70 degrees that day, which is rare for, for Michigan at this time of year. And uh, they're all drinking whiskey and wine and and listening Perfect. to the water boys. So that's the actual wake. That's it, was actual a, wake. it was an Irish wake for sure. Is is you know I've never looked into it. We know what wakes are. Does the the uh, derivation of it come like in the wake of death? 
No. And you were in the uh, wake of or no? I, I, really I can't don't remember. Know. I think. When, when you're happening so soon upon her passing that I thought like, well, what a beautiful image. If you think well, of a wake of the boat or something. Well, an Irish wake. thing behind. Yeah. They would, they would like Finnegan's wake, right? The famous book by right. James Joyce is, uh, is the, the, it's kind of vigil you keep over the body in case, in case the case he's not dead. Okay. Right? Uh, so, and it was a while before the, the hospice nurse got here to pronounce her officially dead. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was, you know, so we, we went from sorrow after her passing I mean, and, and, and joy because she had been suffering from dementia for nine years, nine years. Well, it was not fun. And, uh, so she she passed, and then then there was all this outbreath and relief and joy and laughter, and then when the undertaker finally came at about nine thirty in the evening, and brought her through the room, we and we prayed over her again. It was a uh, it was again a moment of sorrow, and I had to tell the the, the cousins. I was like, "All right, guys, the undertaker's here. Get back into character," because <laughs> uh-huh. they were still in 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 fun mode. <clears throat> but I was uh it was a beautiful experience the, whole, the entire thing yeah and uh and it happened at home yeah yeah which oh, is I were you well and I think yeah. you know death and we're going to talk about the festivals today death is also a festival in that way yeah. right yeah you know and, and, it, and it was surprised me though is that it felt so much like a birth because mm-hmm. I haven't been present for any, besides this one, any deaths, but I've been p- present for lots of births. Yeah. As you can imagine, yeah. with nine kids. And uh, it felt like this, the same kind of uh, energy that happens with, with the, the arrival of a child. Yeah, I can't disagree. You know, having worked with uh, in Catholic Church ministry for so many years, when you mention you know, kind of putting on your demeanor again when the undertaker came, mm-hmm. but. Uh, not being a priest, uh, obviously don't say the funeral mass, but I've done a lot of those uh, quite often. They're prayers at the funeral home or prayers before the, you know, the taking of the body for the funeral yeah. mass and the burial. And I've always seen that um, you use the, the metaphor of, you know, a birth, but there's a breathing process that continues like uh, times where you, you're with a larger community, times where you regather, like at the funeral yeah. home before the body goes to the church, it's the family again. Right. And it's a great time for an in-breathing. And um, boy, you and I know how to beat up on the current state of the church, which seems to be in rigor mortis. But uh, you know, some of these things, these uh, these things have been handed down. These liturgies, these festivals of dying. There's some beauty in the Catholic rites of burial, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's no a, denying yeah, part that. of life in one sense. Well, uh, my deepest condolences. Thanks. You know? Yeah, and I'll continue to pray for your mom and for the family. May she rise from glory to glory. And uh, and again, let's. Uh, you said it's something of a festival. Today we're going to talk about festivals. We're a few weeks away from Advent. I know you having been a former Waldorf instructor, um, I've, I've thought about these things too. You might see new possibilities, again, being so kind of tied to the institutional Catholic Church. I see where some of these, you know, what they call ossification theory, right? Um, right. We had a guest on, you know, let's start with uh, maybe Advent and Christmas a little bit, but we had a guest on a few weeks ago, uh, Mark Vernon. And I want to point people to, if you Google his name and Google, say, Mark Vernon, Blake and Christmas, 
you know, we know that Steiner and some others, you know, were seminal into like reconceiving our festivals, you know, but in the best sense of, I would say tradition, not even breaking tradition, right. an honest tradition is alive. But Mark Vernon used William Blake to kind of look at Christmas and another one, Easter. And I don't know if I've sent them to you, Michael, they're, they're very riveting in what he does with Blake's artwork. But Blake, you know, when he looked at not the modern Christmas, it wasn't consumer Christmas per se, but he wondered how even we celebrate the idea that this far distant, this far distant God, you know, that's a part of it, like comes and becomes a helpless baby. And right or wrong, Blake said, how crazy is that? <laughs> like, where do yeah. you ever think that God was so distant? Um, and, you know, what something we see in Steiner too, is that maybe these festivals can have an evolution in our time. If, if the, the infant in the manger has us like kind of looking back, especially with the Dickens Christmas mm -hmm. and uh, looking back and being all nostalgic, right? Nostalgia can be the mask of memory. Memory is a fructifying sap that is supposed to push us forward to open up like leaves to the new, you know, can Christmas ever devolve and ossify into something that's kind of cryogenically frozen after a long period of nostalgia, which is, um, you know, nostalgia, oh boy, the romantic poets, as you know, had such a field day with the difference between the fructifying force of memory and nostalgia, which can keep us uh, infantile. So these are some of the, the categories I think we need to bring to uh, a re-examination of all of our festivals. And a danger, it seems to me, these are questions I'm having for you. It's like, you're the guest, Michael, you know, and hopefully then you can just kind of set off on some of this and we'll re-engage. But this notion too, that we can think about festivals one of my biggest wars is on the tyranny of the left brain, but there's got to be a huge danger in pretending we can reconceive festivals. Or on the other hand, you know, what does it mean? Like you're doing at your home on Michaelmas. Our, our viewers have listened to this. How do we, how did festivals ever happen in the first place? And all of a sudden people fell into fits of madness by celebrating these wonderful Christmas festivals. Well, how do they um, stop? That's Go a ahead. bigger yeah. question. Amen. How did Amen. they stop? Well, well, they, I'll tell you how they stopped. Uh, well, at least in, in my, my doctorates in English literature. So, you know, I'm really acutely aware of how it stopped there. Well, it stopped there with the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. And that's where, right. uh, who was, that was the first Ronald Hutton, he, on his book, was that, on that. that was the first war on Christmas was the yeah. Protestant war on Christmas, mm -hmm. which unless it was on a Sunday, you couldn't celebrate it and businesses had to be open. Uh, now, ironically, Christmas that's Christmas is the one festival that the secular, the secularists can't let go of because it's good for the economy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, which makes me sick to my stomach. But, but yeah, I would say too, it works when it's trapped in this hopeless nostalgia mode. It's not a threat. You know, people talk about consumer Christmas. All that language sounds so tinny well, right now. You're right. You know, but um, it's true. Well, but no, well, that suffix algia means sickness, right? It's a sickness. Yeah. Um. And that's and so part of it, I think, is is the Protestant Reformation, which de you know disenchanted so much of the of the Christian year, even though it persisted. But I think the other thing is, uh, and I, I think this is so important that the festivals can't be festive unless they're connected to the seasons. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I know that's different in the Southern Hemisphere than the Northern Tara Hemisphere. Tara Theek, our guest, and we'll <clears> have her on again. She thinks this is a real problem that we have to surmount. You know, Chesterton famously, he took a trip to uh, 
Israel, I remember, and it was during Christmas, and it actually snowed. And for some reason, I just thought, like, that works too easy for Chesterton, you know, yeah. that he he could play with some of these Western kind of Northern Hemisphere themes. But um, let, let's just stay on that for a second. We didn't talk about that problem has, it's been a big one for me too, right? That our, our Easter imagery is tied to spring. We want to connect Absolutely. it to that. But what do we do with the fact of the Southern Hemisphere? I don't know. I mean, I don't even, I'm not even going to try to guess because I do not know what it's like to live in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. Never been to the Southern Hemisphere. Uh -huh. So I think that is, you know, and, and I, and I, that's really, really problematic for sure. You know, for, if you're a Christian in the Southern Hemisphere, do you, what do you flip the festivals around? I, I don't think so, but I think you, there is something where, where it gets connected to the seasons as they happen where you are. Yeah. So Michaelmas will not be a harvest festival in the Southern Hemisphere, uh -huh. where it is here, right? Right, right. Right. And maybe it takes on a different coloring. Um, but I think, you know, I'm trying to bloom where I was planted, and I was planted in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. You know? I just thought, like, Tara brought it up. Do you remember her bringing that up last time? Yes. And I just, I've always thought about it, especially when reading Steiner. And I tend to agree with you that, like, um, let's be honest, if they the way that we might think about prophecy, you know, you could have a prophet or astrology that gives you these kind of uh, symbols of nodal points, maybe in a web with nodal points going towards the center. But until you reach that nodal point, the imagery could be different until the reality meets those kind of prophetic symbols. And I think right. the same thing is what you were alluding to that, um, well, that there's different, there's different symbols that could weave around the Eastern festival, um, that capture that we could illuminate each other, you know, like a triangulating on something, the Southern hemisphere and the Northern hemisphere triangulate well, it, on the mystery of Christmas. And it reveals something for both of us. Well, what I think is important though, is that when you start talking about these things, you know, it's, you're dealing with a poetic metaphysics, not uh, a geocentric metaphysics, right? True, true, right. So that's that's what's important about it. And, and that's why I'm saying, when I say I don't know what it's like to live in the Southern Hemisphere. And if I did, I'm sure I would have various insights about how that happens or, you know, how do people celebrate those things? There? I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it, it, what you mentioned Steiner, and, I, and you know this book is, as well as I do, the four seasons and the archangels, yeah, which I think uh, you could definitely apply that to uh, the in breathing and out breathing of the earth, which he taught. It's a big theme for him in, in that mm -hmm. text, right? Where that's even though it's opposite in the southern hemisphere than it is in the northern hemisphere, you can you can see it, you can see it, right? So that's important, and to and to realize Walk people through that cycle, you know, and it's also you can buy it. Owen Owen Barfield translated it into English. Steiner's really genius book, Calendar of the Soul, which is related oh, yeah. to that, you know, right. similar. Yeah. Right. Um, but at Christmas time, you reach the maximum in breathing. Yeah, because um, yep. well, in a way, you can think of Christmas or the winter solstice is that in the northern hemisphere, where all the forces of the earth are drawn into the earth. So in a way, Steiner says the earth is most alive at that time. Mm -hmm. And at St. John's Day or near the summer solstice, it's it's the, the farthest of the outbreath. Yeah. And it's interesting if you watch, uh, and, and this is part of it for me, I mean, a farmer. So until St. John's Day, the plants grow straight up. 
And then after St. John's Day, they kind of do this chaotic explosion, like fireworks in a way, which, and then eventually by, by Michaelmas, which is in September, and at least in the Northern Hemisphere, they, they cut themselves off from the earth and they've given themselves all the way over to the seed. Because once the seeds produce for for annual plants, my job is done, right? <laughs> he must yep. increase while I I must yep, yep, increase. Yep. And so I think it's important to be attentive to this. And I and and I don't care where you are in the world. There are agricultural traditions that uh, were married to the church year uh, on these on these various. Uh, festivals and this in breathing and the out breathing and i mean if you look at the, the solstice so christmas the would equinox. be the height of like interiority <clears throat> yes you know, that we can even look again with a, the culminating symbol of christmas being you know the birth of the light in darkness something again that's more william blake than most of the the rest of the catholic tradition which seems to i was reading this week that um just like we had Guido Preparata on last week when we couldn't have you on, you know, and he really struggles with this notion of uh, theodicy, you know, and, and right. the notion that we have from Augustine, how pale and limp-wristed it is, but the, uh, that evil is the privation of the good, <laughs> right. you know, that Plato kind of uh, doing the exact opposite of the pre-Socratics, Parmenides and Empedocles, who really saw that you had to go into the darkness and find light. He thought like that everything should be done. You know, there's nothing good to come from dreams for the most part. Uh, same thing with Aristotle, uh, that day, day was simply, you know, the, the not night, you know, um, and that night didn't have any purpose intrinsic to itself. And yet I think the Catholic church, when the gospel got wedded to Greek conceptual thought, so many of the insights, you know, think of Christ and the harrowing of hell, but it got grafted onto this kind of classical Greek conceptual thought. Yeah. And it lost this real poetry. And God bless Steiner and William Blake that say that, you know, the sun rising in darkness or give me better Steinerian language. But, you know, in the midst of darkness, you look for the light within the darkness, right. like you're entering that. The sun, this is the much sun, more profound than the sun just at midnight. turning backwards yeah. to the baby in the manger. Sure. By the way, speaking of the sun at midnight, I happened to get up very early this morning and see the lunar eclipse. Wow. Which was on election day, and then it got cloudy. Then it got cloudy about a, half an hour later. But Our I did see. Can go, yeah. Michael made some prediction on his blog about election day and the lunar eclipse that we can start seeing, uh, and we'll see end. how I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I made them several weeks ago, so it, that's right. I didn't right. have I, an, for that. I didn't have to look at punditry late in the game. Yeah. But but well, now here's the thing. So when so for me. So this idea of celebrating festivals in, in a, a living way certainly was related to my experience as a Waldorf teacher, but I was interested in it far before that. Because right. um, I was, you know, like you, I had the Catholic school parish experience, which was almost entirely deadening. I opted for, for mine, you know, it was better than the people who went to public school for me that like our, our Halloween, I just remember it being somewhat magical that it was tied to All Saints. Um, May Day was another one that like, if our church didn't have 70,000 lilacs in it, you know? Yeah, I love that. The May crowning, that was- Yeah, I yeah. It. So there were, there were good elements. So I feel yeah. privileged that I had what I had, but it was probably still desiccated in yeah. comparison with what- came And, and as, especially as I got to be, you know, my late teens, my late teens, early 20s, it just seemed dead to me yeah. that it was, it was- 
divorced from something and I didn't quite know what it was and I figured out it's the cosmos is what it was divorced from in general um and so at that time you know I think one of the things I I got really interested and I found it as a used bookstore as a young 22 year old or something is a a copy of the golden bow by sir james fraser teach us a lot yeah which uh we talked about with ronald hutton a little while ago and even though i could never really get with his thesis his research is fantastic and he had all the you know he told him what people did at these different festivals and i just happened to pick it up today and this this random i just opened the book at this page uh in Bohemia, the custom of beheading the king is observed on Whit Monday. <laughs> a troop of young the, the people Monday disguise themselves. Yeah. Each is girt with a girdle of bark and carries a wooden sword and a trumpet of willow bark. The king wears a robe of tree bark adorned with flowers, and his head is a crown of bark decked with flowers and branches. His feet are wound about with ferns. A mask hides his face. And for a scepter, he has a hawthorn switch in his hand. A lad leads him through the village by a rope fastened to his foot while the rest dance about blow their trumpets and whistle in every farmhouse the king is chased around the room and one of the troop amid much noise and outcry strikes with his sword a blow in the king's robe of bark till it rings again then a gratuity is demanded and he goes on but i you know you read that stuff and i would just love hearing about this stuff and I, I also as i mentioned with ronald hutton you know probably one of my introductions probably the introduction to that was when i read uh the Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Okay. And in one of his footnotes, he refers to Jesse L. Weston's book From Ritual to Romance, which is about the Arthurian legend, which actually was my introduction to Arthurian literature as well, which also draws on this Frasierian uh, agricultural mythos, uh, kind of applied to Christianity, but really the argument is that it, it, it was... Uh, it, uh, it, it was before Christianity which I'm yeah. sure it was, but, but I think Christianity also does this, right? Um, <coughs> pardon me. So, so I was really interested in this stuff as, as a young man. And I w- would read, you know, I was, I wasn't really a scholar at the time, but I would go to used bookstores and I'd find books about it. And I have one here called British Popular Customs, Present and Past, which is a reprint from a book from the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got a, a bunch of this junk. And I loved reading about how they would, would celebrate these festivals, in, 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 in particularly in the British Isles, but all through Europe, and wonder what the heck happened. How do we, why do we not do this stuff? This sounds like yeah. fun, right? And we just, it's, we're not only disenchanted, but we're kind of reductive. We're, we're down to bare bones, right? right? Christmas and Easter, <laughs> right? That's it. Yeah, 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 really, and, and you ask most you ask most Catholics even when's Michaelmas they can't tell you. And Catholics, they so many of our converts, you know, they want they come in so excited to have the liturgical year, but then they find two years into it that they're they were left purely to their own, you know. Yeah, that there's nobody supporting them in this. Just think so, recently again, you know, a, one little tangent. There was a, an article I read, a Christian a scholar. I'd like to have him on the show sometime. His name is. Christian Roy, he's up in Canada. Oh yeah, but he's a scholar of uh, Spengler, Oswald Spengler, and some other things. But he, tell me if you agree or disagree. But I was thinking of how in our diocese and in all dioceses, you know, the cup is gone because of COVID, and it's not going to return. 
but it took me back to when, you know, in the uh, relatively early centuries where this fear, you know, and I'm going to get into the festivals and the male female polarity here. But, um, you know, all of a sudden this worry that uh, a drop of the precious blood could spill or, or you know, a, a, a crumb from the loaf, but especially the drop, you know, they're very yeah. feminine, just like the women, we always want to map them, right? But the women kind of, they blow away maps, the whole feminine symbolism right. is pulsing with divinity, water, the whole question of uh, uh, Bergson, you know, trying to like how right. to capture water philosophically. So the cup is taken away. Uh, one other thing that this guy wanted to tie in, and I think it has to do with the decline of festivals, is that he saw haggling in the marketplace as a very feminine thing, right? Discourse yeah. of conversation, of flowing between, versa in the word conversation. You know, but all these things are kind of dancing with each other. We lose the haggling price for the fixed price of the market. Right. You know, and we had uh, Michael Baywins, who was on some months ago, mentioned the connection between purgatory accounting books, well, accounting books and purgatory. Yeah, you no couldn't kidding. have yeah. one without the other. And then uh, then the grail legend comes up, you know, the cup is removed, the grail legend comes up and you get these themes of, you know, the wasteland. And you right. mentioned T.S. Eliot, a land that has to be restored by imagination. You know, this question of the Fisher King, what are you going through? Right. Um, and then, you know, with Vatican II or whatever, the cup comes back, it's, uh, who knows? And now with the, the complete left brain tyranny of the COVID nightmare, right. you know, the church, again, giving up the cup and it's not going to return. What's well, interesting when, I mean, we're, I think we're going to talk to our grail country peeps in a couple of weeks, yeah. but uh, the, the grail literature, disappearance of the cup that actually arose at the time of the fourth letter in council when, when the cup was definitively withdrawn from, from the, the faithful. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like these things. That are, was Aquinas's yeah. deal, right? So it disappeared. And I think what happened is when they say, say more about it being Aquinas's deal. Well, that was I one of the things he thought. He argued that it's not necessary to commune in, bo in both kinds. Yeah. For the faithful in particular. And is that connected with his like again? We love Aquinas, but he was like notoriously bad on women. I can't say again. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I think I. I think Frito was on last week, and, and he I think the whole Thomistic corpus. By the way. I, well. I think he's right. I mean, I think he's right. Um, but I think the problem is, is that it's reserved. As we grew up, right in the church, it was reserved only for the priests. Mm -hmm. We get the cup. You don't get the cup. Um, doesn't never made sense to me. I mean, intuitively, it doesn't make sense, right? No, no, doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but I think what happened is crusaders when they were going to the east, they encountered the the orthodox or the eastern liturgy the liturgy of saint john chrysostom where you can't withdraw the chalice from the faithful mm -hmm. it's impossible because the 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 holy bread comes out of the chalice it's immersed in in, in the wine right yeah so you can't do that so that i think part of the the holy grail mythos was a working out of that and and the idea that it was lost right was Has where the is orthodox it? church did they take any hit with this during the covid stuff i wonder well, they got weird. They 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 you had to bring they your own spoon weird. or something. I don't know. Yeah. It was kind of weird. Uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I just it makes me mad. Yeah, because they because this was an and I think what you just talked about it's holding the Eucharist hostage. Yeah, for sure. It, and I'm that's wrong. It's wrong. I mean, I, 
I mean, wine anyway, it's a natural, it's alcohol. It's going to, it cleans everything anyway. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Um, People have said, I think medical doctors have said of the, of the two species, the, the danger of cross-contamination is greater with the, absolutely the bread than the cup for but sure. but here we again we're, we you know it's so and this is an example of the the left brain thinking you're talking yeah. about right this is not poetic metaphysics um so going back to the idea of the festival so and here's the thing right okay so for me this had everything to do with uh, bonnie and i deciding how we were going to raise our children Right? How do we celebrate the festivals? Because you, you don't know, right? And what is authentic, and how can you uh, provide your family with something that's real instead of something that's kind of packaged? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and one godsend was my exposure in Waldorf education to to the way uh, Rudolf Steiner was kind of reimagining doing the Christian festivals. Not in a nostalgic way, like moving backwards, mm-hmm. but in a way to move forward, but to, to not lose what was celebratory and sacred at the same time. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we did with my mom, right? So at, at the Waldorf School, that mostly happened, well, it happened with Easter when I was there. It happened with Christmas, but the big ones were May Day and Michaelmas, right? Mm-hmm. Which were just wonderful celebrations. And when I stopped being a Waldorf teacher, I'm like thinking to myself, well, and the problem with that in a Waldorf school is it becomes Martin miss was pretty big for you, right? Martin was big too, but it was a, it was a boutique kind of thing. It's not something that lived in the community. It was just kind of this museum thing that went on at the school. Isn't it charming? You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But you wouldn't see anybody doing that outside of the context of a Waldorf school. So, and I was like, well, like I'm not teaching here anymore. My kids aren't going here. You know, if (laughs) people aren't going to use something to take it back. So, so we started doing here on the farm, uh, which has been enriching. And then what happens is it starts to enrich the other festivals. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's important you, too. and you find ways to, to celebrate all through the year you get, you know, and you find different ways. And the thing is, and this is, I was looking for this book and I must have gotten rid of it or lost it or got wrecked years ago. You know, I mean, it's a, it's good to have the kind of philosophical or the, theological um, understanding of it like, that you get from Steiner, for instance. But that's not going to do any good in, in dealing with actual people in the actual world. Right. So, I mean, with children in particular. And this is, Tara was, has been t- egging me on to, to write a book about stuff for kids like this. And I think I was thinking about this today. This might be the book I need to, to write one of these days is one on how to do the festivals. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and, so you look for ways to install this. Now, for me, part of it is uh, these resources I get from like Robert Herrick, how they, he, he would do it in his, he, he phrases it in his poetry, the celebratory uh, attitude he has, but, and even in the Golden Bough, not that we're doing 
these beheading rituals, but we do little things. Uh-huh. But the thing is, how do you how do you make it relevant today and not like a Renaissance festival deal, right? Cosplay, and, the future. And, yeah. and it's and and this is where. So here's the thing, right? So you can have it outside of the context of the church year. So even though uh, at a Waldorf school, it's not a Christian school necessarily, right? Um, but it's outside of the context of a, of a faith community. It's a school community, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it's kind of just stuck there in a kind of almost museum atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's not living in the, outside of the, that small environment. Um, on the other hand, um, you can you can get the the kind of antiseptic um, approach to it that you fi- you find or not that doesn't even exist. Um, so the, the, where the church is disconnected from the cosmos, or the parish is disconnected from the cosmos, so it doesn't work there either, mm-hmm. right? So how do you how do you bring these two these things together and make them live? Um, And it's and it's a question, yeah. Well, and what I think the thing the thing is, you just do it, and you have to. It has to be a a union of of these festivals with with a the a liturgical uh, practice. That's and and when they're united, then it becomes you know, I think, a living tradition. But what are the things you do to make that alive? You know, and, uh, and and especially for children, right? And my and my kids get total. I mean, they're, they're getting a little older now. My two youngest are eleven and thirteen, or they're almost twelve and fourteen. And but they're totally into it. You know, when mm-hmm. when one festival ends, they're like, okay, what's the next one? What's the next festival? We got to get ready. Uh-huh. And so after Michaelmas, which was September 29th, we we celebrated a couple of days before. We had Halloween. We were preparing for All Souls Saints and All Souls Day, but we had a, a Halloween thing in the barn, which is a lot of fun. A um, few families came, and uh, it was also very connected to. In fact, <laughs> I told the kids, so I said, you know what would happen in, in some old old places where on All Souls Day they would have a big bonfire, and. And they would burn the clothes of the people who had died for the last year. Kind of a reminder that uh, they have to move on. And so after my mother died, (laughs) my son said, I'm going to burn grandma's clothes now. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And I said, well, we would, but there's there's a lot of polyester in that wardrobe. I think we might just donate it. Out of the uh... (laughs) bathroom, babes. No, but I get it. Anybody can see that uh, how that would be immediately gripping to like young boys but but how to you know i mean how do you do this i mean one of our favorite things that we do that's not michaelmas in in a in a may day is we really celebrate the 12 days of christmas Uh which is a which is ever since we started doing that that's time of the year has become so much magical is not the word but uh alive might be the yeah. better word, right? So we celebrate all all the days between Christmas and uh, the Epiphany or the Theophany, and we chalk the door. I don't know if you chalk the door. Yep, we yep, make yep. we're pretty elaborate about the way we do it. 
<clears throat> and we have a big twelfth night feast with with the bean cakes and 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 the whole bit. And it's you know a bunch of people come and we sing songs and recite poetry. Well, let me let me interject something feast. here when you mentioned twelfth night too. Is that um because <clears throat> we're we're still saying like how does it happen? So in our little community here south of Rochester, we have um, we're blessed on the dairy farms to have. Uh, and uh, in in various industries around here, but we've had a lot of Mexican and Puerto Rican immigration. I'm thinking of uh, uh, this whole like obsession with Victor Orban kind of leaves me dry, but something that was interesting that was pointed out to me is he spoke at, I don't know if it was CPAC or something, but he was, uh, he was challenging people uh, on the conservative side of the spectrum to say, you know, the craziest things you guys are doing is being hostile to this uh, Mexican immigration. He goes, I would be welcoming it with open arms. So these people still have vitality, um, you know, and a connection to. And so in our community, for the Catholic community, even that um, obviously the, the Trey Ray, the focus of the three kings yeah. is celebrated in our area. So it's neat. Um, I was once part of something where and I was quite disappointed. We were working with, I think in this case, it was the Puerto Rican community. Uh, and to kind of, you know, I was running the parish at that time it was about nine years ago. And I'm, you know, I'm reappointed recently. But I, I suggested that the, uh, why don't we give within our midst, the Puerto Rican community, you know, everything they need, whether, you know, it's a, uh, the, the parish hall, you know, I could raise money, yeah. but for them to lead us into their celebration. And I can't tell you what happened, Michael. And this is, this is original sin. This is the fall. What they got people to do is they had non-Puerto uh, Rican people giving talks on this festival instead of celebrating it. It went totally left brain from people yeah. who weren't from that tradition. An intellectual. And then we had that we had a we had a, a cake. We had to find the the little king in it, right? And it was so tokenistic, yeah. and I couldn't believe it. I had well, to walk out, kind of in protest. I was so mad that I thought I'd empowered this kind of like how we can learn from you know we have to imagine our impoverishment and learn uh, to celebrate from people of a sharing of traditions. And it became a classroom and it became uh, the, the beneficiaries of the education became the people who lectured on it, a didactic right. history of this festival. And, and it was sinful. sinful and that's, sinful. it is sinful. And that's the problem. I mean, one of the yeah. problems with uh, the way the festivals are observed in the church these days, it's mostly uh, an intellectual, con it's a concept. Yeah, right. It's not a practice, mm -hmm. right? And I and I and I know you, know, you probably did too. But I intuitively felt as a kid that there's something missing in these, you know. Yeah. And, though it was, I mean, I like I, like you said, I think the only exception to that was the May crowning, when yeah. the kids at school brought every lilac in the neighborhood. Yeah, and and we were stealing the them from our neighbors' bushes. <clears throat> yeah, you know, we, yeah, it was just so much fun. It was fun, and it it meant something. Yeah. Right. And singing the Lord's hymn. I remember that at school. It was a wonderful experience. But that was it. Yeah. I mean, besides Easter and Christmas, right? Where the church always, you know, pull out a couple stops for Easter and Christmas, but that was about it. Yeah. Um, outside of that, there was the there was the the church fair, which is a fundraiser, but it had wasn't connected to anything liturgical. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yep. Which I, it was fun to go. I mean, I loved it. So that would have been neat if the church fair could if it had coincided <laughs> with uh John the Baptist's birthday, if you had a huge bonfire and yeah. things like that. There's something, right? Yeah. And but I think that's the problem. I mean, I, I another thing I think that 
serve to disenchant the the church here was industrialization, right? Of course. And urban and urbanization, right? So people are more and more disconnected from the land, but we know that people who are disconnected from the from the cosmos, uh, they're given over to to depression. Yeah. You know, and they feel alienated from right. from the world, right? You know, Which is of, I mentioned this Oswald Spengler before when he talks about the decline of civilizations, the rise and the falls. You know, he has something of a checklist, you know, and that we can go through it in our time. But it's to your point about cities and the disconnect. Um, he doesn't talk about the rise of cities leading to the decline of civilization, but as one of his marks, and I'll say a few others, you know, um, a military that doesn't reflect the populace, check. Uh, a fake intellectualism emanating from the cities, check, check. Check, check. Uh, a disconnect be between the cities and the countryside. It's not the growth oh of cities. But again, when they're disconnected, that's where they become, that's where they metastasize. It's not just on their own. But when you lose that harmonious thing that would keep the city in the right size, this, uh, you know, it's like anything. It's the push and pull factors, the embeddedness of cities within their matrix. Right. They get disembedded, then they grow to monstrous proportions, then they become parasitic on the countryside. And Spengler knew at that point you're seeing the decline of that civilization. That's well, you know? it's brilliant. And yeah. and I uh, and one of my touchstones is uh, the the rise of enclosure. Absolutely. And which happens. I mean, it happened in. England, you know, by just passing laws like throw people off the land. So what happens? People are thrown off the land. They got no place to go but the city. Become yeah. wage earners, right? Which is uh, William Cobbett. If you probably know him, yeah. what a great figure that guy was, who uh, railed against this practice because he thought, you know, you only need a couple acres, uh, and you can. And the, the secret to happiness is bread, beer, and bacon, right? Yeah. Some and, of our uh, listeners are, are probably <clears throat> screaming from their chairs. Those who've had the good fortune to read Eamon Duffy's The Stripping of the Altars. Yeah. You know, this is a seminal book that proved that on the eve of the Reformation, you know, the, the story told is that these festivals were all desiccated. Nobody cared. He, he points out that these things were vitally, vitally Absolutely. alive. You know, that Absolutely. One of the best books written in the last 40 years. I think so. And uh, where was I going with this? Uh, the, you were talking about William Cobbett and Enclosure. Well, yeah, with so enclosure. So, what happened, and you know, you can see this through uh, the litter. I mean, this is the Industrial Revolution. So, what happened? They, they passed in these enclosure laws to throw people off the land so they could go work in the factories, you know, and which which contributed to depression, alcoholism, prostitution, etc. Yeah, child labor, all these evils that came out of this this movement and what what it, where i live what happens uh in a more subtle way they just get their methods become more sophisticated so here what they do and probably where you live too is they sell farms to to developers which makes the the tax that taxes go up yeah. then the other farms can no longer afford to keep their farms because the taxes are too high they're forced to sell that's enclosure yep right? yep no, you're, you're, and, I think that you're one of the few people making that very clear in our time, how we're and, doing it again through those. And, and that, and that further disconnects people from, from, from the cosmos and from the soil, you know, yeah. only repeats that cycle of depression, alcoholism, drug use, et cetera. Right. Well, so we head into <laughs> Advent, let's, you and I both share, um, maybe some insights, you know, and can, we can revisit this theme, Tara will join us, I'm sure, um, 
but let's just focus on maybe the Advent Christmas epiphany cycle, you know, um, and I'm, I'm afraid I'll probably be a little too left brain, but, you know, I'm thinking of some of the distinctions. I was just uh, at a church meeting um, that I've had several parishioners who, um, who mentioned that maybe on 60 Minutes and on PBS, I guess, maybe these are two different ones, but I've, I've had links sent to me by many parishioners on um, TikTok, the, the special the special evil way this works on young people's brains is if screens weren't already destroying them, right. it would be like a generation getting drunk that all of a sudden fentanyl comes in, right? Right. And so I need to watch these, but I was I had a meeting at our parish two weekends ago and it was a convening parents on the issue of screens, right? And one of the things that was outlawed was like the phrase kids these days. But um, uh, so in our parish, I was just having a meeting that we have adoration on Thursdays every, uh, um, every week. And I felt when I attend adoration of the, that during Advent, it's the most counter-cultural. That when I'm in a church uh, as sun is setting and Steiner or Emil Bach, you know, one of his interpreters talked about uh, contrasting the holy rush of Advent versus the unholy rush. Right. You know, that there is a rush even in our tradition, but uh, the consumer one is an unholy rush. And it could be, you know, creating a space of building a highway to our God, you know, these, these images from Isaiah, but anyhow, mashing all those things up in our time, I was just thinking out loud with a coworker in pastoral ministry, how um, maybe instead of the opposite of kids these days, but if we could get parents to have a, a just a techno fast on their own from as soon as, you know, the afternoon hits, cause we're not asking too much at this stage, maybe just from four o'clock to the end of that night, no screens, no phone or anything for the parents. And then, and sitting in silence together, joint renunciation is a big thing for my hero, Ivan Illich, yeah. you know, as opposed to Lent saying, I'm giving up uh, cigars, I don't smoke cigars, you're giving up this, we both beat ourselves up when we fail, yep. or we have pissing contests and things like that. Joint renunciations of technology are very powerful. And I'm forgetting the anecdote from Gandhi, but there's a famous anecdote where his son, I guess, you know, was doing something wrong and Gandhi paid the penance. So I'm kind of liking right. this image that in Advent, if we can get some parents to join in a techno fast, let's let the kids do their own thing for a while. We got to get our relationship with technology uh, under control too. And I always tell people pastorally, uh, whether it's this issue of codependency in a marriage or anything, the best thing you can do for that person you love is to show them you're working on something yourself, right? Yeah. So Advent, you know, we're talking about stillness, you know, and I plan to bring something like that to my own Advent. Um, I also remember as we head into uh, Christmas and Epiphany that Steiner, I'm not saying it's Steiner says, you know, nobody gets into that, but he would say the backward lookingness uh, towards Christmas might be needing to be counterbalanced or superseded in our time with the forward looking nature of Epiphany. And he had the feast of, uh, you know, New Year's Day or Mary, the mother of God, as it is, as kind of a Janus headed feast right. where we're kind of looking back to Christmas and forward to Epiphany. And, um, you know, that I know that, um, you know, if we want to get you to break something, uh, we're going to mention to you how they've moved Epiphany to their Sunday, right? You know, for all, uh, damning all your Don't even get me started. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, but, uh, and these books, we mentioned it can't be left brain and reading about them. But for some people have written to me saying, like, how do you get into this Steinerian corpus? Again, it came up, Guido was asked about, like, 
the three greatest writers and he put Steiner up there again. Yeah, I heard that. And everybody wonders, how do you wade into this? But there's a series of books and I don't know the press, but they're labeled like Michaelmas, Easter, Christmas, and they have selections from Steiner, right. short little introductions. And this That's, is a genius series. That was That's a great Christopher. That was Christopher Bamford's work. Was it his baby? Steiner okay, books. Yeah. yeah, he did and a great job. Online. Doing that. They're cheap. They're cheap. And yeah. you can buy the one on Advent and buy the one on Christmas, and just use those as like fertilizing seeds for yourself. Do yeah. not take them as blueprints for things you have to implement, right? No, and and I like I mentioned, the Four Seasons and the Archangels is a really good one. And you mentioned yeah. Email Bach, which I just happen to have on my lap. Which one? The, oh yeah, it's a great. The Rhythm book, of the it? Christian Year. It's a great book. It's a great which, book. And and he, I mean he he's he's definitely an anthroposophist, but he's a. It's a Lutheran he, minister, wasn't he? Yeah, he but he been, makes yeah. he makes Steiner easy. He tr he's a great translator of is, of yeah. Steiner into common language, yeah, yeah. you know, in a way. Because you read Steiner, and some people are like, "Okay, I have no idea what's going on here." That's my favorite non-Steinerian <clears throat> book of Steiner in my library. Is Bach's good. book? Yeah, it's a good book. Yeah. Um, and it's useful. And in fact, um, I was looking through it before before we we started today because it's it's so chock full of pithy insights. Yeah. You know, which is very useful and very. I mean, you can tell this guy was a was a serious, uh, committed Christian. Yeah. You know, he wasn't he wasn't just some flake. You know what I mean, Emil Bach. His book um, on Mary <coughs> is one of the best books on Mary I've ever read. Um, I don't know yeah. if it's called Threefold Garland or something like that. Yeah, I can't remember what that's called. Um, but but yeah, I mean, so so with Advent coming, it's uh the season of preparation and really advent started coming at michaelmas absolutely right and as you see here in the northern hemisphere everything starts to to retract right where all souls day and then martin miss which is a beautiful festival which we usually do with the little kids we don't have any little kids right now lantern we'll walks. observe it at home but we have lantern walks with the, we've done it on the farm or even when we lived in the city we still we would do it there um and then it keeps moving deeper and deeper. And this is what the thing is, is, pardon me. And this is what I learned in the Waldorf school is going into Advent is a kind of process of almost, I wouldn't say sinking, but concentrating sure. where, so you, you, you start from Michaelmas, which is a big festival about, you know, good versus evil and Martinus, which is the light against the darkness. And also the feast of saint lucy or santa lucia in december and then finally get to the christmas festival right so you've kind of just drawn in as this and through advent and we they did a wonderful thing at the waldorf school and they still do it i i don't know if they still do it because they they are <laughs> i think a lot of waldorf schools have distanced themselves from christ but they used to do like the, it's their job like yeah they, they used to do the advent garden Okay. which was really beautiful at the school I worked at. They would make a spiral of the like, stones first, like rope, no, like roping, yeah. you know, oh, okay. pine roping that people put on their houses or whatever. And they could spiral in this one room and have candles and crystals and pine cones and different things yeah. decorating. And the, the, like the kindergarten kids would go in there. I think that is still done. I while someone, while someone's playing the harp or the lyre yeah. or something, yeah. and they would make a, little circuit through that spiral and out you know which is just gorgeous kind of like a labyrinth or yeah, same more like a spiral thing. not like a yeah, labyrinth okay. more not like sure. a spiral yeah. 
a double spiral so you can go in and out without yeah, yeah, turning yeah. around right um and when i taught the couple times they would have i forgot you know, about they that usually had thing. somebody playing the lyre but sometimes they would have a small group singing you know which was gorgeous you know and so and this is the thing is our the way we do it in our culture it's so damn superficial and it's like a walt disney movie 24 7 and we don't know how to bring children to reverence yeah and that's i think one of the great gifts of rudolf steiner was he and he said it, he emphasized it in, in teaching you know we learn we must learn how to bring the child to reverence because if a child can't cannot become to reverence he'll, as, as a child he'll never be able to raise his hand in blessing as an old man right right so i think that's important learning how to bring and because i think children have a natural affinity for reverence and one thing steiner points out and you can read it in Goethe's autobiography. He talks about when he was a little boy and he took this music stand and he made it an altar to nature, mm. which kids just naturally do. Yeah. Right. They want to, you know, they have a special place where they have this special rock they found or a pine cone or something there. It's, it's a innate religiosity. That We're going to be doing a show have. on the secret Commonwealth soon, you know, but again, that's uh you know what? I can't think of that without thinking of how, especially my oldest daughter, who I'll be seeing this weekend in New York City, she uh, uh, spontaneously, you know, my wife knew how to teach crafts to kids like nobody, but the way Mary would find moss and put it here yep. and then do this. And she was creating things that she had no template for, but she was creating fairy houses before she knew what fairy houses were. Yep. My kids did uh, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, you just wonder, um, but that that spiral for Advent, have people look that up too? I could I could bring that to our local church too, just outside. Oh, it's maybe beautiful outside the church at Adoration, you know, some Thursday. And, um, and it's how could you know? And how and that's I, I think with with the idea with festivals for me anyway. And, I, and this is actually what this is why I said it. My mom's uh, passing reminded me of this because there's there's both reverence and carnival. Yeah. involved right so when my mother was dying when she died it was that we were in a moment of reverence and it was beautiful all my nieces and nephews and uh sisters but then it went to carnival almost spontaneously and right away right and then it went back to reverence yeah, yeah, yeah same thing when we do the so when we do michaelmas for instance <clears throat> it gets it we when we have the the parade with 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 the dragon meeting saint michael at the top of the hill behind my house uh it's 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 joyful but it's serious at the same time there's an interesting mood that permeates that and then after that you know we say we say grace and we go into the barn and, and have a, a feast and it's and it's joyous right? so you have to have both yeah and these you know you have to have go have reverence and celebration or car, you know, the carnival aspect of it it has to be there yeah. Otherwise, you know, you don't have a range. No. You know, one I of the things. I just took some college students on retreat at a Franciscan retreat center this uh, this weekend, and having worked at a Trappist monastery too, I was the retreat director. That uh, <coughs> a typical college retreat, at least this one, has like chapel time where you're very serious. Then there's we might have a grand silence on Saturday afternoon, but the meals are hysterical, right? Whereas the yeah. Trappist retreat house, and I love this. Don't get me wrong, and I still need those kind of silent retreats myself, but. The meals were all taken in silence. 
but a typical college retreat where everybody's got these inside jokes that keep on growing and growing right. and you're laughing hysterical and you're not talking about anything religious and you're cutting on people. Then all of a sudden the second night and you haven't met some of these people before you're back in chapel again. And the way, the way the social plays off the, the Reverend yeah. uh, just builds over the course of the weekend. This was an intercollegiate retreat. So we met people from different colleges and, um, that same pattern you're talking about builds and builds and builds and they both reinforce one another, you know? Right. And, yeah. and, and that was one of the things, and this is what I think the, the Protestant Reformation tried to, to squash that, right? To, to, yeah. So the range was like this uh -huh. and it tries to squash the range to this, you know, to try to keep it under control. Yeah. And one of the big complaints prior to the Reformation in England was that the Whitson festivals were getting too out of hand. Yeah, that's why they call it a Whitson Ale, and uh -huh. Whitson Ale because that was when the, the the beer is ready. Okay, let's try it out. Let's take it for a spin. And people didn't like people that there was some uh, busy bodies who didn't like that people were having too much fun. Yeah, and Ben yeah. Johnson makes a fun of a lot of this in his plays. He excoriates the pro the Puritans in particular because they were big party poopers. Yeah. And you have to think, who are the party poopers in our culture who are trying to to squash all that? Silicon because Valley. Because it's it's both it's both uh, spiritual and convivial, right? Yeah. So there's a there's a spiritual or otherworldly element to it, but there's also this great convivial, joyful, um, um, celebratory. Uh, element to it but who's trying to squash that for us well how about flip the flip the coin and, and that that um that old logoi or you know commonplace that living well is the best revenge you know that one of the you know it kind of captures the same thing that so can we name these people you know the the elites or whatever but there seems to be something draining the fun out of the world well, but also the best revenge is, okay. is uh celebrating these things is a great punch back in the face that's right so you know, so that's kind of what uh, I guess how the Grinch stole Christmas, right? You the, know, the, the take home, even if you're not religious, do it to get back at the man. Yeah, absolutely. Another great literary reference. I don't think I can let an episode go past without mentioning John Cooper Powis. But the um, if people want to see a great literary reference to festivals, and I mentioned before the feminine nature, according to this author, Christian Roy, of like haggling in the marketplace, you know, that got replaced with the fixed price. Right as being something of the death of festivals is in the beginning of a masterwork, Owen Glendeweer, you know, Glendeweer was this great uh, yeah. Welsh revolutionary around the year 1400. And the, the novel begins on St. John's day and Trappist monks and marketplaces uh -huh. and vagabonds and monks all interacting. And it is, it's a wild couple of opening chapters. If you don't huh. even read the rest of the book, you know, it makes you hungry to see all these interconnections that we're talking about, right? Right. You know, and again, we could bring uh, commerce isn't bad. You know, we, we know that uh, uh, commerce is a great word, the circulatory nature, but the way the economy has been disembedded, you know, right. from, from the rest of culture and it has its own world, you know, the economy, this is stuff of the Antichrist folks. So it is, we absolutely. can re-embed the economy back into our festivals and humanize them, right? It used to be, we knew the power. People think, oh, we didn't know the power of the market. You know, Carl Polanyi is right. the great uh, the great historian of this. Is No, we knew the power of it. We just limited it to 
to these days, like on, on Saturday from 12 to three in this space. And we yeah. surrounded it with conviviality. When we, it got disembedded yeah. and then everything had a market price, that was the end of the world, right? We scaled so it the to Protestant the human. Reformation and the disembedding yeah. of the market could be yeah. stink bombs to fun in this whole world. Right? And you know, I'm sure you know this book, Brad Gregory's The Unintended Reformation. Yeah, I haven't read it. I know it's really good. I mean, he's yeah. really good about this, and he. What's I think the premise he, he's there? Right that same type of stuff. Well, the right? same that the disenchantment of the world, yeah, and, and the rise of this kind of uh, atheistic capitalist, you know, rapacious thing. Yeah, that that all belongs to <laughs> to the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, you know, own it. You got to own this. This yeah, is your the baby. I mention it, right? Because we're when we go into Advent, we were talking about it. Again, the language, doesn't it sound tinny now? We need like, uh, the enemy is consumer Christmas. And I went, okay, that's too easy. I get your point. But uh, but again, the marketplace, uh, non-usurious, non-fixed price, the marketplace, if you go to these Christmas markets in Europe, you see right. how the market can be tied to like wonderful Christmas. Well, it can be, but that's the whole thing. The, the word economy means household. Yeah, right. So if once the economy is divorced from the household, yeah, it's it's pathological. It's like the difference between uh, when you write on pornography, nobody wants to condone necessarily any of it, but the difference between you know driving to the seedy side of town and going to a strip club and seeing a lady's boobs versus uh, the only for the lonely consumption of internet pornography, right? Right. Um, same thing, you know, Amazon getting uh, the Black Friday deals on Amazon as opposed to going to a Christmas market and having some uh, mold cider and walking around and seeing your neighbors. Uh, right. You know, that that's what I'm saying. The language of consumer Christmas it, uh, confuses as much as it illuminates. And I, and I think in a few weeks, we're, we're going to have a, a show on distributism, <laughs> which is, I mean, this is what we're talking about. I mean, it's yeah. how do you make it? How do you make a, uh, an economy human? Yeah. Yeah. Right. How do you how, how do you do that? And and, and without going backwards. Yeah. Right. I mean, maybe it will happen, you know, not to get too off track, but, you know, uh, what does John Michael Greer call it? Deindustrialization. Yeah. Right. You know, with that, you know, I, I think that's probably somewhat inevitable. You know, I don't know if it is, but I like the idea. Yeah. And, 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 but do people think what it would be like to live? In, in a more self-sufficient way, which is interesting because there are a lot of, you know, I don't want to get too off track, but a lot of people who, you know, are trying to live off grid and things like this. I, I, I think much of what they're doing, I don't, I can't speak for all of them, but is not trying to unplug from society as much as trying to find an authentic way to live. Fair. Right. Yeah. And I and that's an important thing. And I, I'm, you know, I'm lucky where I live. We we encounter a lot of people like this who are, who will get raw milk from us or, you know, and, and most of them are involved in other things as well. Like there's one of the people who's who's uh, studying naturopathic medicine. There's another one who uh, when we go to these reenactments, uh, she actually makes these brooms, which are awesome. Uh huh like a broom made of broom, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are and, the deal. And we bought one from her. That's how we got to be friends with her. And, uh, and but, and so I think I told you um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was tanning one of our, one of our sheepskins. Mm -hmm. 
which I finished the job. Actually, it's a rug now. It's awesome. And we have it in front of, in front of the stove. But <clears throat> those kinds of things, even if you don't do it, you know, hundred, you know, in such a small percentage of, of the way we live, but those kinds of things connect you to the real, right? Which help you, you know, you, first of all, you appreciate how hard it is to do things. But the other thing is, is, is you're connected to real things. And when you're connected to real things, like you were talking about the, the fasting from, from, uh, from the tech during Advent, right? As a, as a family, for instance. But you do real things, you're, you're naturally disconnected from the internet. Right. Because you, because you're involved in the real world, like uh, yeah. our our friend, our mutual friend, and frequent contributor to Jesus the Imagination, Tyler DeLong, yeah, is a phenomenal woodworker. Beautiful stuff. You know, he's a brilliant uh, theological thinker, but he's also an extraordinary woodworker, and the the man is connected to the real through the, through through that All arts the time. That craft. I wonder right? if he's ever not connected to the real. When he's yeah. not carving, he's out in the woods, and his kids are fishing and streams. And yeah, that's great. Yeah, I also, so, you know, if uh, if people as if they needed another reason, but all this stuff is the antidote for anxiety, right? Absolutely. You know, and that's uh, the thing. I mean, and civilization is a sickness. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I mean. I mean, the economy, the, the the household, which we can extend to you know our friends and neighbors, uh, is not a sickness. Mm-hmm. At least, right? It's not pathological, but you get to, uh, to a bigger scale, like you're, like you're mentioning with Spengler when he talks about the, the growth of cities. Yeah. Eventually, it gets to a pathological state, and then it then it implodes. If we have any listeners who know, you know, we just mentioned bigness there. You know, it's a huge theme of mine. But the um, uh, a guy that and maybe for the name Leopold Kor, he um, he has a a book, the breakdown of civilization, or the breakdown of culture, or the breakdown of something. But he was one of Illich's favorite thinkers, Leopold Kor. So if any listeners know of a Kor scholar, he's somebody we have to have on. But Kor would say there's only one problem, bigness. You know, when things grow out of their shape, he would point out that picture a little, you know, hobbit house, cute. But if you if you took that and you took it out of scale, so you just saw it, you know, uh, across the hills and it was huge, it looks, you know, ugly. Yeah. And that we've lost the ability to talk about scale. You know, today's election day. Let's not wait into those waters. But the problem with election day is we've lost the scale for democracy. You and I have both taught humanities. And as far as we know, other than an attempt by David Hume to map it onto larger, larger systems, no theorist of democracy ever thought it could work beyond like one to 10,000 in terms of representatives to vote or the size of a city you could walk across in one day. Yeah. And yet here we are having a conversation about the loss of our democracy when my congressperson represents over a million people. Like I want to say that ship sailed a long, long time ago. A long ago, time folks. ago. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and hopefully we'll touch on that when we talk distributism in a few weeks yeah, too. Yeah, 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 scale. So I think, you know, because we'll be revisiting this theme, I don't think it's wrong for us to kind of pull it to a close at this and point. I th- and I think we yeah, can't finish without, since yeah. you mentioned scale, Yeah, I mean, the classic text on the on the subject, Small is Beautiful right, by Schumacher, Schumacher right? Yeah. Which I think, you know, he was, he was so far ahead of the game. Yeah. You know, he saw it coming. Was it was that written in the fifties or early sixties? I forget when. It's a long I time I ago. Copy right behind me. Yeah, I do too. I'd have to get up. <laughs> I'm looking. That students always watch me look for books. When you need them, you can't find them on your shelf. You know, when you're at home. And, you know, and exactly another thing, oh, one thing I want to mention now. Yeah. One book that was super helpful when I was tearing the house apart looking for it 
uh, about festivals and celebrating in the year. And I don't remember the name of it. And I think it was by Caitlin Matthews. You know, the I do. Yeah, she's got stuff on Celtic lady. stuff. Yeah. Celtic stuff. I think it was by her. It might not have been by her, but it was a cool book about celebrating the year. And I looked on her Amazon page and I didn't see it. Because it has a Celtic name. I, th- <clears throat> I think I know the one you're talking about. They may have rebranded it as a Celtic name. I might have had an older edition. Yeah, because it's all about Beltane <clears throat> and all these things, but it's easily mapped on to the traditional Celtic. Oh, yeah. Grid. But the thing right. is, what was cool about it, and this is what I would like to do if I ever do a book like this, it had recipes as oh, well right. as things one. you can do. So what's how do you make a 12th night cake? Or I think actually... Yep. Uh, it was for the May Day or for his Michaelmas. There was a great recipe for making cider, hard cider, mm-hmm. which was the huh. first time I tried yeah, t- tried my hand at fermentation thirty years ago. Yeah. So, and I'll that's what that's what was great. Yeah. I mean, that's because that's the practical stuff. Is what do you do? Yeah. You know, yeah. how can I do this stuff? Right. And, yeah. and that's and I think that's more even more useful than the intellect. Um, the intellectual stuff, which is useful. And certainly. again, it's so decidedly non-intellectual is this book I mentioned earlier. It's short. I tend to read at home and I have a dog crate next to me that we have a small dog. It's big and it's always there, but it's a, it's a small little book. I think generally they still charge you like 20 bucks for it online, but it's Rudolf Steiner's calendar of the soul. Yeah. So each week it just says, it says, for example, like October 7th through the 14th. Right. And it has about three lines. The, the version I have has the translations from Owen Barfield. Right. But this would begin the whole process we're talking about with this cycle from inwardness to ecstasy, from inwardness. And even his ecstasy, as you know, is it contains more inwardness than the old solstice festivals, you know, the, the purely pagan ones. But right. that's another, if let's, we might have temperaments listening to us that want to begin you know, right within their own body. And this is where Steiner begins. If we can, it's almost like we can start to recognize the festivals within our own body, right. specifically within our own breathing process. Now, now we started with talking about my mom. Yeah, tell me. And I would like to end not with not about my mom, but something that, that I was, when I was looking through the email box, the rhythm of the Christian year, which he said uh, in one of the later pages, and I think this really bears uh, important what we've been talking about. He's, here's what he says. The event on Golgotha is for Michael first and foremost, a key to all the portals of the future. He wants us to recognize that every rightly accomplished death moves humanity forward. Every inner suffering bears fruit. Thus, life constantly blossoms forth from death. Right. And it's not just my mother's death, Beautiful. but it's, this is what the yeah. whole idea this of celebrating the, darkness the Christian and, yeah. year is, yeah. 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 right? This is what the, this is what the agricultural cycle is, Yeah. right? And, and I again, think a rightly lived death is the opposite of all this, what I call embroidering lace on the void. All the stuff we do right. with conceptual thoughts and scholastic theology and everything, a rightly lived death. And that, and 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 I think you know what, what the, the oldest line in philosophy is, right? Lear, philosophy is learning how to die. Yeah, right. Right. But I think um you might we might even say that because of our fear of not even confronting death, but um being with death. And this is a Heidegger, right? But this is I know this was my mother, the sacred experience of my mother's death, which is I'm 60 years old. It was it took me that long to do this. Wow. Yeah. Right. And uh it, it was it was a sacred moment, and it like 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 Bach says, you know, it it bring it 
it, it, there are seeds of other things there, mm -hmm. right? There's the seeds of the future. Are, we're, we're, we're there. And just like in, in the, the celebration of the living and dying of the year, we can call it, right? Or the living and, or the, 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 the death and resurrection of Christ, mm -hmm. right? For sure. So anyway. condolences to you and again, you. my friend, and to the House of Martin. You know, thank and you again. Um, I think this was a, the right thing to talk about. You were, you know, you were in the zone, and again, like to celebrate a life well lived, just to tie in the microcosm within the macrocosm. So yeah. I'll be holding you all in prayer this week. And I appreciate that. Tomorrow. Yes. Okay. God bless you, okay. my friend. Yep, Take we'll care. See everybody next week on the Regeneration Podcast.